Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Plum Crit 101. As always, I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist. So, for those of you who follow me on Instagram, you may remember that I said we would be talking about a well-known disease process that can turn deadly quickly. Let me set the stage for you. I had just finished getting corn out of someone's lungs, which is a story for another time, when I got a call for an admission from an outside hospital. They were requesting transfer to my institution because they literally didn't know what to do anymore. Turns out that they had admitted a gentleman in his 70s with a history of diabetes, and he had had a high fever and just this generalized sense of malaise and fatigue. His fever was peaking up to 103. Now don't get too excited, this isn't HLH, I promise. He was initially admitted to their ICU. They pan-cultured him and treated him with everyone's favorite, Vank and Zosin. The fever broke, and he overall seemed to be better, so he was transferred out. All his cultures at this point were negative. But as luck would have it, his fever returned, and he again started to look kind of toxic. So a very enterprising individual at this outside hospital said, you know what, I'm going to do an LP. What do you guys think that LP showed? You know what, let's, let's actually back up for a second. If we're doing an LP, I think we can all agree that meningitis is probably at the top of our list of things to rule out, right? So let's pause and kind of go over meningitis. So as the name says, meningitis is really an inflammation of the leptomeninges, or essentially the tissues that surround the spinal cord and the brain. Obviously, if this is left untreated, it can have devastating effects, including a very high mortality and morbidity. Classically, this is going to be someone coming in with a high fever, usually higher than 38 degrees Celsius, a bad headache, maybe some nausea, malaise, and then they can have that classic neck stiffness. Now, if that patient does not have neck stiffness, that does not mean that they don't have meningitis. Another thing that you might see are these very typical physical exam maneuvers, and boards may ask about this. Um, And what I'm referring to are the very classic Brzezinski and Koenig signs. Now remember, the Brzezinski sign refers to flexion of the hips when you passively try to flex the patient's neck. And the Koenig sign is when the knee, K for Koenig, K for knee, doesn't extend or doesn't fully extend when the hip is being flexed to 90 degrees. Now, just like with the neck stiffness, if you don't have the Brzezinski sign or the Koenig sign, this doesn't mean that the patient doesn't have meningitis. So you've got this patient, you think they have meningitis, what are you going to do next? The infamous lumbar puncture. This is what's going to tell you what type and which specific organism is your culprit. So you need to do this ASAP if you have a high suspicion that the patient has meningitis. What's even more important to know, though, is when you should delay doing that LP. So the only times that you should wait to do the LP and get a CT head first is that if the patient is immunocompromised, for example they have HIV, cancer, they've had a stem cell transplant, if they have a history of some sort of central nervous system disease, whether it be stroke, abscess, etc., they have a new onset seizure within the last few weeks, they've got papilledema or other signs of cerebral edema or herniation, an abnormal level of consciousness, or a focal neurologic deficit. We also need to remember that you should never delay treatment for the LP. What that means is that if for some reason you're not going to be able to get the LP done right away and they don't need that CT head, you should start your antimicrobial treatment ASAP. All right, so you've determined this theoretical patient needs an LP. How are we going to interpret the LP results? 
there's always a few values that you need to look out for. That's gonna be your opening pressure, the cell count and differential, and the glucose and protein levels. Of course, you're going to also send for gram stain and culture, but that's gonna take a little time to come back. So when we think about meningitis and our LP results, it makes it a little easier if you categorize the types of meningitis, bacterial, viral, fungal, and of course, tuberculous meningitis, meningitis due to TB. So if your patient has bacterial meningitis, what are we gonna to expect to see in the LP? We're gonna see a really high white blood cell count. Generally, we'll see anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000, and it's usually going to be neutrophilic. You should have a higher opening pressure, and you should have a low glucose, usually less than 50. Your protein's also gonna be high, it's gonna be greater than 200. Now, viral and fungal meningitis are gonna have a much lower white blood cell count. It's usually gonna be less than 500, and your sample's going to look clear. With bacterial meningitis, it's gonna have more of a turbid appearance. In viral and fungal disease, the opening pressure will usually be normal. It can be a little elevated, and the glucose is going to be normal to low. Protein will be on the higher side in fungal meningitis. Now, TB meningitis is a little different. It's going to have a lower white blood cell count, just like viral meningitis, but the protein and glucose levels are going to be closer to what you'll see in bacterial meningitis. You'll also have a higher opening pressure. So now that I've thoroughly confused you, let me add another twist. Remember how I said you shouldn't delay treatment until the LP is done? Well, I had told you that we use the LP to guide our treatment decisions, but how are we going to even decide on an empiric treatment plan for our meningitis patients if we're not doing the LP? Well, this is where the history is important. There are certain organisms that are most commonly seen based on age and other predisposing factors. So let's talk about these empiric regimens. The first thing we have to think about in terms of age is the age range of two years old to 50. And the most common bugs that we're gonna see here are gonna be Neisseria and Strep pneumo. And remember, in this discussion, we're only gonna focus on the adult population. So if your patient is between the ages of two and 50, you're gonna to wanna to cover them for Neisseria and Strep pneumo. So you're gonna treat them with Vank and a third generation Cephalosporin. Most commonly, we'll use Ceftriaxone. Now, if your patient is older than 50, the most common bugs to think about are not only Strep pneumo and Neisseria, but you'll add uh, into this category Listeria and aerobic gram-negative bacilli. So you'll do the VANC, you'll do the third generation Cephalosporin, but then, and this is the key difference, you're gonna wanna add ampicillin. Now, meningitis is also common or can commonly happen in patients with head trauma. So that's another group of patients that we need to empirically cover. So if someone has head trauma, specifically a basal or skull fracture, we're gonna be looking out for strep pneumo, H flu, and group A beta hemolytic strep. So we're gonna to wanna to use VANC, and again, that third generation cephalosporin. Now, if they've had a penetrating trauma or they're a post neurosurgical patient, we want to think about staph aureus, coagulase negative staph, including staph epidermidis, and aerobic gram-negative bacilli, including pseudomonas. So the regimen changes just a little. We're gonna keep the vanc, but then we have some choices here. We can add either cefepime, ceftazidime, or meropenem. Now, another category we think about are the, those immunocompromised patients. So we'll still cover for the strep pneumo, Neisseria, Listeria. We're also going to cover for the aerobic gram-negative bacilli, including Pseudomonas. 
So we'll keep the vanc, but we'll upgrade from that third generation cephalosporin, usually the ceftriaxone, to cefepime to make sure we're covering for the pseudomonas. And then we'll also do ampicillin to cover for that listeria. Now, if you don't want to do cefepime uh, and ampicillin, you can use meropenem in place of those. You could do vanc and meropenem or the uh, three drug vanc, cefepime, ampicillin. Now, one important word here about strep pneuma meningitis. You guys may have seen that steroids, specifically dexamethasone, uh, is added to an empiric bacterial meningitis treatment regimen. Why do we do that? Well, we actually had studies done that found that giving specifically dexamethasone either before or at the same time as the antibiotics for meningitis in those patients who you think may possibly have that strep pneuma meningitis, it actually decreased the neurologic complications, the rate of hearing loss, and mortality. You can also add rifampin to this if the MIC to your gram-negative coverage, specifically ceftriaxone and cefotaxime, is intermediate. Now, what's really important to remember is that you need to stop the dexamethasone as soon as you isolate the organism, because the benefit that the dex gives only was seen, was seen only with strep pneuma meningitis. And actually, in meningitis due to other organisms, if you were to continue the dex, there was actually an increase in mortality that was found. All right, so we take a quick breather here. You guys are experts in meningitis by now, I'm sure. Let's go back to our actual patient. So we left off uh, with the outside hospital having done the LP. Let me give you guys the available values that I was told. They did the LP and they came back with a white blood cell count of 2,000. And I don't know about you all, but that's probably one of the highest white blood cell counts I've seen in the CSF. They also told me that the cell count was granulocyte predominant, 81%. Remember, neutrophils are a type of granulocyte. So we could argue here that this was neutrophil predominant. Also, blood glucose was 40 and protein was 185. They didn't give me an opening pressure though. So if you think about all these values, I think it's safe to say that we're probably dealing with a bacterial meningitis at this point. I didn't have any gram standard culture when they called for me to accept the patient. Um, so we were assuming a bacterial meningitis that maybe hadn't been appropriately treated. We got him over to our institution. He was still awake and alert, appeared overall ill, but otherwise intact. We went ahead and got the lab on the phone to see if the gram standard culture had resulted. And it turns out that he had, dun dun dun, listeria meningitis. Now, here's what's unique about this patient. Untreated listeria meningitis is classically lymphocyte predominant. This guy only had 5% lymphocytes in his CSF. The other thing to know about listeria meningitis is that it can cause a lot of focal neurological signs like seizure, cranial nerve abnormalities, hemiplegia, deafness, and even something called a rhomboencephalitis, which it involves the brainstem or even the cerebellum. At the same time, it can also present very benignly, very similar to how our patient presented. All right, so we've got this guy with an, essentially an untreated listeria meningitis. No big deal. We got him started on appropriate treatment, which of course included ampicillin and went on our merry way. My plan was that if he continued to improve, I was going to transfer him out of the IC in the next 24 hours. Let me tell you, this guy wasn't going anywhere, except maybe to a tertiary center. Why? Because when I walked in the next morning, he was completely obtunded. He had sonorous respirations, didn't respond to a single stimuli, not even sternal rub. 
So we got him intubated ASAP and sent him down for a CT head. What do you think we found? I can tell you it wasn't a herniation. It wasn't a bleed, wasn't a stroke, wasn't an abscess. But if any of you guessed non-communicating hydrocephalus, ding, 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 you win the grand prize. I can't even begin to explain to you all how massive this hydrocephalus was. Unfortunately, our institution does not have neurosurgery in-house, so we got them on the phone right away and got him transferred to another institution where they were able to put in an extraventricular drain ASAP. The point I want to make here is that while we all know meningitis can lead to death if it's left untreated, we often forget that it can result in a debilitating neurologic dysfunction as well. <clears throat> Other things it can lead to include seizure, stroke, hearing loss, abscess, even subdural empyemas, transverse myelitis, aneurysms, and ventriculitis, and of course hydrocephalus, which we actually see in about 10 to 15% of those who have untreated listeria meningitis. This case actually illustrates some very important points. First, you guys have to be able to recognize the signs and symptoms of meningitis. Second, have a very low threshold to start empiric treatment and make sure you're treating for all possible organisms. Three, get the LP. It is paramount. It helps you narrow down the etiology and it helps you figure out maybe it's not even meningitis at all. Number four, don't forget the DEX. You can stop that steroid once you find out which bug it is, but you'll never live it down if you forgot to give it and your strep pneumomeningitis patient goes deaf. And lastly, if you treat meningitis in a timely fashion, you're not going to have to worry about any of these neurologic complications. But if you don't, be very aware what could happen and don't sit on it. These complications can turn deadly. We got very lucky with our patient and he's doing great now, but it could have very easily have gone the other way. I hope everyone enjoyed today's case. As always, don't forget to follow me on Instagram at pomcrit101 or email me at pomcrit101 at gmail.com if you have any questions. The pod's available to listen on Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google, and now Amazon and Audible. I want you guys to get ready for the next episode because we are going to be talking about everyone's favorite, rashes. And nope, it's not the run-of-the-mill poison ivy exposure or just a usual allergic reaction. No, no, we're going to get into the really gross stuff. Rashes that ooze blood and fluid and can even send someone into multi-organ failure. And I know some of you can't wait. I know I'm equally disgusted and excited to share this case with you all. As always, I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist, and I'll catch you next time.